I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This week's sponsor is Book of the Month Club again. Book of the Month Club is a service which I think is like the best thing ever, where you get to pick from five books each month uh, to get whichever one is your favorite. Book of the Month Club is offering Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books listeners an exclusive offer of signing up for just $5 for your first book. This is not to be missed. Bookofthemonthclub.com. Go check it out. And many of the books on this podcast have been Book of the Month Club picks. Uh, so go, just go buy them. Enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, for this exclusive offer. I'm here today with Jamie Brown-Hantman, who's the author of Heels in the Arena, Living Purple in a Red-Blue Town. Jamie has worked at the highest levels of government, including at the White House and for the U.S. Department of Justice. In 2008, Politico named her one of the 50 Politicos to watch. She currently lives in Northern Virginia with her husband and daughter. So welcome, Jamie. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, me too. So please tell us, Heels in the Arena, Living Purple in a Red Blue Town. What is this about and what inspired you to write it? So it is my memoir. And when people hear a Washington memoir click, they want to go to the next channel because they usually think it's going to be some sort of self-serving, sort of bloviating, name-dropping, very serious sort of book. And I wanted to do the opposite of that. I was sort of, the goal was Legally Blonde meets Bossy Pants. So it is a memoir, and it's about my time working in Washington, mostly in government, but I try to do it in a way that's a little more self-deprecating and hopefully a little bit funny. And you started it with this really funny quote when you're on an airplane with George Bush and that George W. Bush, and you told him, at a certain point, a woman has to choose between her face and her ass. Tell me, describe the scene and how <laughs> yeah. that went over. Yeah, that was not something I thought was going to come out of my mouth. So one of the jobs that I had that I loved was I was working in the White House. I was a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And that means that we were the liaison for the president to Congress. And one of the the most important parts of the job is to be there when members are with the president because you don't want him off by himself with members because they'll make up stuff about what he said and promised. So, you know, one of the best ways to do that and more fun ways was flying on Air Force One. When he would invite members, we would be there. So we would each take turns flying on Air Force One. The person I was there accompanying that day was Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania. And Senator Specter, for anybody who knows anything about him, is somebody who would not just go to the back of the plane in the guest lounge. He would would go right to the president's office because that was sort of the type of person that he was. May he rest in peace. So I was hanging out in the president's office. And so it was the president, Karl Rove, me, and Senator Specter. And Senator Specter excused himself uh, to go to the restroom. And the president was just chatting with Carl about uh, some big event he'd had at the White House the night before. And there had been a woman from Texas that they were both friends with who'd been there. And the president was going on and on about just how much weight the woman had lost. And she just looked great. And it was really impressive. It sounded like one of those biggest loser transformations, <laughs> you know, not knowing who the person was. But then he paused and he sort of like nodded his head the way we all know and was thinking that he goes, you know, but she looks, she looks a lot older now. And without even thinking about why I was there, who I was and what was going on, I just blurred out what you said. You know, well, they say at a certain point, a woman has to choose between her face and her ass. As soon as the words came out of my mouth, I'm like, oh my God, what did I just do? I said it out loud. But he sort of thought for a moment and then he said, you know what? That's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> 
very relieved. <laughs> wow. Well, that sets the stage for the book and the history of your career in Washington. <laughs> How to move forward when putting your foot in your mouth. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> I, like, it just makes you want to know what else you've said by mistake. Yeah. You know, things I've said by mistake. Part two. <laughs> so let's go back a little because the book is not just about your time in Washington, but it's also a memoir of your life and growing up and your family and your Christian faith and your upbringing, all of it. And one of the things you talked about was being obsessed with books, especially mm-hmm. a book like A Very Young Dancer, which, by the way, was by <laughs> Jill Cremens, which I was obsessed with too and has been in two books that I've read recently, yours and, and another one. Wow. So I feel like, I don't know, it's been on the brain. Talk to me about the role that books played influencing you as a child. As soon as I learned how to read, I was just insatiable, just had a book with me everywhere. My mom was a teacher, and so she encouraged that. And, you know, summers, we'd do the weekly trip to the little library in Moodis, Connecticut that was unair conditioned. It smelled like old books and old wooden floors. And that smell is one of my favorite smells in the world still. Sometimes she would read aloud to us. You know, we'd have one book that we would sort of read together so we could enjoy the story. But I just started consuming books and inhaling them, basically. In second grade, we lived way out in the boondocks and had a long commute to school. And I would lay in the back of the hatchback with a little house on the prairie book. And I worked my my way through, yes, the whole series that year without a seatbelt on, in a back of a hatchback on the way to school and back. And then we had a station wagon. You did? Yeah, same thing. thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then another one that is still probably my favorite book is Little Women. Mm. Just absolutely loved it. You know, when I was writing my memoir, every woman and gal who's read Little Women thinks to themselves, I'm Joe. I'm finally being true to myself and writing my story and it'll do well instead of all her little fanciful tales that she told. And I see that there's a movie coming out again, another remake, which I'm excited to see. So, you know, lots of just books about strong women and girls just, you know, doing things for themselves and getting through it. And I just, I'm so grateful that I was in a house that encouraged that. And your mom wasn't just a teacher. She was also your teacher. Yes. And I love the part when you were finally in one of her classes, having Mm -hmm. watched her, you know, be with her students forever. And she started off wanting you to call her like Mrs. Mrs. Brown. Mrs. Brown. Yeah. That did not, right? Yeah, that was probably a couple weeks. Yeah. It was a little school and there were kids who called her mom. So I just thought, why should I call you Mrs. Brown when mom seems to be the standard around here? (laughs) So my my grandmother tells a story that, she worked for my grandfather in his office uh-huh. for a week. And at the beginning, he was like, in this office, you will call me Mr. Phillips. And she was like, I don't think so. And she walked out and never, never worked for him again. Anyway, Good for her. Yeah, that's the kind of woman she is. So your mother, she was your teacher. Mm-hmm. She was like the central figure in your life. You wrote about her right. so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And you ended up later in your life actually having her as a roommate, which I found really interesting. <laughs> so you're like, I'm back in my parents. But you didn't make it like... I'm moving back home. You were like, I chose my parents as roommates. Right. Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. Or my husband would say weird. <laughs> no, not weird. Whatever. I, um, I think it's cool. <laughs> but I think I just wanted to talk about your relationship mm-hmm. with her. And then I don't want to give anything away in the book, but I just wanted to touch on your yeah. relationship with her and yeah. how formative that was. And I don't know. Talk yeah. about Say something I about lo- that. I would love to talk <laughs> about my mom. She... You know, I mentioned she was a teacher. She was one of those teachers that her students will almost to a person say she was my favorite. She had 
an unbelievable impact at, you know, by the time her career was done with thousands of students and she cared, she was very passionate about it. And so to have a front row seat to that, because I was in a little school, little Christian school. So we would ride to school and back and, you know, she would love to talk about her day because she was just so fired up about it. Um, And then, you know, later I had her as a teacher and she was my government teacher in English and history. And so I guess it's, you know, not super surprising that I ended up going to law school and being involved in government because I had this great foundation from Mrs. Brown. <laughs> there, I'll do a shout out with her her teacher name. And I thought it was so great when you got, there was one job you're particularly excited about getting. And for her, it wasn't just her daughter who had right. accomplished that, but her student. Right, right. And, you know, that was the great thing about living with them, again, was, you know, she was teaching at a school in Annapolis near D.C., and we just had a tradition where every year I would go back and talk to her students. And with each job that I got in government sort of going up a ladder, you could tell she was more and more excited to introduce me to her students. She was so proud, which, as a daughter— I mean, that just is a great, great feeling. And yeah, she, you know, I mean, the fact that I was able to get a job in the White House, I had her to thank for, you know, just starting in 12th grade, making me memorize probably 40 or 50 U.S. Supreme Court precedents for the final, which was more than I ever had to do in law school. It shows you sort of how demanding a teacher that she was. (laughs) I also thought it was interesting what you said about law school where you got to law school and realized like this was the one area where you don't necessarily have to be the top student. Right. And it opened you up to other things that were going on. You were at Georgetown. Right. You're in the middle of everything. Right. Maybe classes weren't the most important, which for an overachiever, I'm sure was like jarring in yes. a way. Yeah. It was, I mean, I was one of those sort of Tracy Flick types who it was always about getting the top grades and doing the best that you can. And for me, I always had that goal of law school. And so that was high school, that was college. And then I get to the school of my dreams in air quotes. And I was like, uh-oh, I don't enjoy law school. I don't want to go to a firm. What did I just do? I'm going to be taking out all these student loans. Uh Uh-oh, this is a mistake. And I was on the phone with my dad, and he was so adamant that it was really important to just stay with it and that it would open doors. You know, he's like, he's in business, and he's like, you know, people with law degrees, they're respected even if they're not practicing law. You just never know what's going to happen. So I took his advice. But the nice thing was that instead of worrying about sort of that Tracy Flick mentality of doing the very best that I could and being top of the class— I viewed it as the first step of my career as opposed to the last step of my education. And it took a lot of pressure off and and also just knowing that I wasn't going to try and, you know, go to a big firm. And so I just... Yeah, just of, the White right. House. I mean, yeah, no, no pressure. <laughs> that's the irony, gonna, right? Like, work for the president <laughs> himself and whatever. <laughs> but that's, I, I think that's part of the irony is if you let yourself sort of seek where you fit the best and you're enjoying what you're doing. I ended up, as you said, in the White House with a bunch of the lawyers who were top of their class in Ivy League, and we were all preparing, you know, the same nominee for a Supreme Court hearing. So it worked out. So what do you attribute your success to? Like, is it persistence? Is it, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, it's definitely not just one thing. I think it starts with a foundation of doing your best when you're young and taking advantage of your education so that you are prepared for that little bit of luck. Like it's got to be both. It has to be preparation. And then there is some element of sort of 
fate, karma, luck, however a person views the world, that has to be a piece of it because, you know, for every person who's working in the White House and highly qualified to do so, there are 30 with the same type of resume who are just not there because of not having a certain relationship or not being in the right place at the right time. And you say in your book, too, sometimes you need to do the thing that scares you the most. Absolutely. Talk to me about that. What, like, what scares you the most now? Well, now it's... I'm sure it's different than back yes, then when you were, yes. you know, pioneering and yes. tromping through the halls of the White House. Yeah. The funny thing is, once I had my daughter, the things that scared me about work didn't really have the same bite anymore. It put a lot of things in perspective. So the things that would scare me the most actually are, you know, about my daughter and what happens to her. And I think, you, you know, any mom can appreciate that. Professionally, the I'm doing the thing that is scary, you know, putting a book out and especially a memoir. You know, it's, it was one thing to have it sitting on my laptop for a year and a half, you know, as this sort of thing that I worked on and had an editor. And then once it came back and it was, you know, in typeface, the layout, it was, it hit you. Like, this is going to be there for anybody to read. And it, it's a, you have that moment where you sort of gulp and you're like, nope, we're doing this. Let's just see what happens. So... That, that's the scary thing now. So what made you take it from the laptop to typeset? Like, wh- what made this into a book that now we're talking right. about together? <laughs> I, you know, I just realized that we are supposed to speak out and we, ha- we each have a unique thing to contribute to the world. And one, you know, I have these interesting stories, but it isn't just about telling the stories. It, I tried to write it in a way where my stories can be helpful to other people, to young women who may want to go into public service in some way. I mean, we're in a time when people are incredibly interested in what's going on in our government. And, you know, it's exciting to see, like, you, you know, Women's March and, and the Students March for Our Lives. There's so much passion. And I just wanted to provide a little bit of a guidebook for someone who may decide they want to take it to the next level, providing the lessons that I learned and just pieces of advice. A lot of it applies to D.C., but some of it, I think, can apply no matter what you do. So, And what was your process like writing it? I am one of those people who can only write a little bit at a time. So I would do, you know, 500 to 1,000 words a day. If I didn't get it done in the morning, it wasn't going to get done because I'm one of those people who's morning person and then my energy depletes as the day goes on. I was nowhere near doing it on a daily basis, but when you have the goal and you just keep chopping away at it, it gets done. It took me probably about a year and a half of writing. And the thing that really expedited it is is having an editor who I owed pages to. And then mm-hmm. somehow it got done a lot quicker yeah, at that accountability. point. <laughs> accountability helps yeah. with like basically everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about having broadcast news style breakdowns mm-hmm. in the book, which I loved because I have always sort of referred to them as the same thing. Yeah. For anyone who hasn't seen broadcast news, which came out in, I don't know, the 80s and 90s, there was a scene where Holly Hunter's at her desk and she would just unplug her phone back when phones were just landlines and unplug her phone, cry at her desk, dry your eyes, plug her phone back in and get back to work. And you had moments like that. I'm sure we all have. How have you gotten through moments like that in your life? You know, you just, you just keep moving forward and reminding yourself that you're in the job that you have for a reason. You're qualified. You have the ability to do it. And you know, we're all human. And, you know, in the the times that I was doing these broadcast news style cries, the most was when I went to DOJ, I was in legislative affairs there. And after only four months in the department, they promoted me to run legislative affairs for the entire 
department. I would have never raised my hand and said I was ready for it, but they thought I was, which was a nice confidence boost. But it was really, you know, jumping into the deep end. And so the office that I inherited, I didn't move into the office, but it had a private bathroom. And so we were trying to get Attorney General Ashcroft ready for an oversight hearing in a Senate Judiciary Committee, which is probably one of the most stressful things that you have to do in legislative affairs at DOJ because the knives are out when he goes up there. And I was or I was running the, the process of getting him ready and making sure that he, you know, no question would come his way that he wasn't ready to answer. And that was probably the most pressure I've felt in any sort of work project ever. And so sometimes I would just excuse myself and go into that nice little private bathroom and close the door and just, you know, let it out and wipe my face and go back out and, and you know, it, it took a, a lot of pressure off, actually. It was a nice, a nice tool, I would say. <laughs> Crying can be helpful. Yes. I've, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> so your sister went into the military. Right. You went into politics. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say there was something about your parents' parenting that encouraged you both to mm-hmm. do these sort of mission-driven, selfless-type careers. What do you think it was? It was probably example, you know, my mom, you know, being a teacher is, is such a mission driven type career, giving back to people. And my dad was, and still is in the computer industry, but he did everything that he could to support her. You know, he was there with her for all the extracurriculars and we had kids in our house all the time. So they were definitely a team and it wasn't sort of an overt, you will do X or you need to do X. It was, you know, I'm thoroughly convinced that people can most impact other people by the way they live as opposed to the words that they say. And the lives that they live, just that was what you do. And you just, you see the impact that they have. And I think that's what they passed on. And they're also, you know, they were politically interested people that was sort of always around in the house, conversation about what's going on in the news. And so that sort of, you know, I think impacted my interests. Speaking of politics, you and your husband are on opposite sides of of the aisle. Right. How do you, especially in today's like highly charged, divisive political environment, how do you navigate that big difference between the two of you, if it still is as pronounced as it was in the book? It is not as pronounced as it was in the book. During the time that's covered in the book, when I was working for John Ashcroft and George W. Bush, he was working for Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Schumer. And it wasn't just working for D's and R's. We were working on the same issues, but on opposite sides. So I was trying to get John Roberts confirmed to the Supreme Court, and he was fighting to keep him off the Supreme Court. So we really had to you know, figure out a way to be a couple with that sort of work situation, which I actually found it really good and helpful, both personally and professionally. On the personal side, you know, D.C. is a company town. Most people come home and they just sort of talk about what they did all day and what's going on in politics. And that wasn't necessarily going to be a really fruitful, good discussion for us. And so it forced us to talk about books and movies and, you know, all the other things that make up normal people's lives outside of Washington. (laughs) And the other thing that it did for me that I think is it, you know, translates for people who may not be in that sort of fraught situation cells, but need to sort of get along with people on the other side of the aisle. It actually made me better at what I did because I couldn't go home and just complain about those crazy people on the other side and what they did to me today and I had to fight against because he was the other side and this is somebody that I loved. And so it behooved me to 
listen and try and figure out why he was coming from it from a different perspective. He loves his country as much as I do and wants to serve it and have it succeed. He has some different opinions about how to do that. And approaching it from that way makes a huge difference. And I think that's something that it would be helpful for a lot of people to remind themselves about now because things are much, much worse in terms of political divide. My husband and I are not as politically divided at this point because, you know, as I talk about in the book, I'm, I now consider myself an independent mm-hmm. because of, you know, the current president that we have. But, you know, there, it's, it's still, you know, we're going into a time of year during holidays when people are going to be sitting around holiday tables with relatives with extremely different opinions about things. And, One piece of advice that I thought was really great that I learned or heard was Arthur Brooks wrote a book called Love Your Enemies. And he talks about the concept of contempt and how there's so much contempt and that that is the most dangerous attitude to have towards people with whom you disagree. It is corrosive in terms of how you view them. It's corrosive for yourself to hold those types of feelings. And so people need to realize that we are all humans. If you believe in God, we're all made in his image. And start from that premise and then try and talk to them and figure out why they may feel the way that they do. Mm. So, and maybe not spend quite as much time on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. I think that's probably good advice across the board, right? Yeah. I mean. Yes. Was there anything that was really unexpected in the political world? I mean, I know you touched in the beginning of your book about not anticipating some of the physical comments people would make about like your hair and mm-hmm. that how this goes back so right. long. And I know that like in the newspapers these days, people are always talking about how, you know, such and such a woman didn't like how, you know, blah, right. blah, blah. Right, yeah. Tell me about that aspect of things and if there was anything else that really, I don't know, threw you off or you weren't expecting or. I, you know, one of the more comforting but unexpected things that I learned from some of these jobs that I had is that most people have some, we're all human, and most people have some level of insecurity. You know, even at the highest levels, these people who go on TV and they're senators or cabinet secretaries, and, you know, you just think that they're just a master of the universe, and the camera cuts off, and it's, how did I do? You know, like, we're all, we all have that side to us. And I think there's a lot of imposter syndrome in D.C. I mean, I wasn't, I talk about it, like, the first page of the book is, I'm sitting on Air Force One, and I can't believe it. And you keep expecting somebody to come tap you on the shoulder and say, there's a mistake. We're not sure how you made it in here, but you got to go. So many of my colleagues, unless you're like completely like off the charts arrogant, which of course <laughs> DC has share of those too, most normal people have that feeling. And so it helps to know we're all just doing our best. I tell my kids this too. And like my daughter was a little nervous about how her Halloween costume would look uh-huh. in kindergarten. And I'm like, Aww. everyone's thinking about their own yes. costumes. <laughs> They're not thinking about yours, right? It's and it's true. the truth. I mean, it starts, starts then when you're first aware of yourself. It's right. like the differences. Right. And then it goes all the way, you know, to the upper ranks of the government. You know? We are all still kindergartners We're just hoping people like our costume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So wait, so what are you doing now? So you finished... You're, you had this consult. You tell me, what okay. are you doing now? So I, once my daughter was born, I hung out a shingle because I wanted to continue to have some sort of work and intellectual stimulation and challenge, but I wanted to be able to carve out my own hours and work smart. You know, all moms know that 
you can get a lot done in a little bit of time. So I started a consulting business doing government relations consulting. Right now, my main client is Every Town for Gun Safety. So I'm working on the gun safety issue at the federal level, helping them, especially background checks and red flags, trying to get that passed at some point. So that well, keeps me busy. Very timely. Yes, yes, I would imagine. That's yes. like such a hot issue at the yeah. moment and so important. Do you get to, so if you are, if you have a consulting firm for governor, like, do you have to agree with the people? Like, would you take yeah. on a client whose mission you didn't agree with to no. fight for them? No, I wouldn't. Some people, surprise, there are lobbyists who will do that right, kind right. of thing. But I would need to feel at some level pretty comfortable with the client's agenda. You're never going to agree 100% with a client, but as long as there's sort of a fundamental alignment, I I think it makes all the sense in the world. And so what is coming next for you now? You have this book coming out, so exciting, or book out, so exciting, and you have your shingle hanging, and you have your daughter. Yeah. Where do you see life taking you? So one of the things that's been exciting about the book coming out is that a lot of the speaking opportunities that I'm getting are in front of audiences of younger people and young women. And so I'm going to do every single one of those that I can. I just want to talk to them about how to do it, if this is what they're interested in, and how to do it smart, and how to do it for the right reasons if they really want to go into public service. So we'll see where that goes. I'm my mother's daughter. I would love to to teach a class at some point. And then, you know, I also would love to have the book do well enough that I can justify spending the time writing a novel. I would like to do that next. Enough, like, talking about myself, like, that part is over, and then I I want to pivot into fiction. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned speaking and giving speeches, because you you gave great advice in your book about giving impactful speeches. You said, every time you give a speech, strive to be interesting and authentic. Never just go through the motions. Each speech is an opportunity. If your lips are moving, you should be thinking about whether what you're saying rings true to you, and if it's adding value to the people who can hear you. So that is great advice for any conversation, not just a speech. Right. But if your lips are moving, what are you doing? What are you adding? Right, Um, yeah. And and the lesson, when I learned that lesson in a big way, it was when I was at DOJ and I had just gotten that promotion that sort of scared me. And within the first week of having the job, they told me I needed to give a presentation to the leadership of the department. So the top 30 people, and that included Bob Mueller, Ted Olson, John Ashcroft, you know, that group of leaders. And, uh, you know, that's daunting. You know, what am I going to say that's going to make Bob Mueller's life a little better? And my predecessor sent me his notes. He's like, it's no problem. You just need to talk about what the office does and how it can help them. And I looked at his notes. He is one of my favorite people and a mentor, but they were his notes. And they were about the our office being a sword and a shield. And it was all sort of very masculine metaphors and all that. And I just, I looked at that. And I thought, you know what? That's Dan's approach, but I am me. And I need to do this in a way that is true to me. And so the framing that I did, I wouldn't do it today because we're 15 years later and, you know, times have changed. But I used examples that were extremely feminine to make my points about, you know, how we worked with the Hill. And I got great, great feedback from, you know, the leadership of the department. People loved it. And they still remember it. I ran into someone at a cocktail party and 15 years later, he said, that was great. I still remember so, yeah, each, each time you're speaking, like I said, you know, is an opportunity to make somebody's life better. Think about what you're saying. Don't just go through the motions and, and try and make it different each time if you can. Is that your advice to authors, too, in terms of what they would write? Like, what other advice do you have to authors, aspiring authors? Or 
I would say don't wait for anyone's permission to do this. You just, if you have something to say, you should be saying it. It's your gut telling you that you have something unique to put out into the world. Don't wait for, don't become an influencer first so that you can then, you know, take the next step, write your book and put it out there. And you just, you don't know what's going to happen. Love it. Well, thank you for sharing your time and your expertise and experience with us. Oh, well, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonthclub.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for just $5. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. 